Lord God, we come before you. We thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you that we can gather together, worship you, praise your holy name. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Open up our eyes to the glories of the gospel. Help us to understand your word, to apply it in our lives, to live for you, Lord, to be lights in this dark world. We thank you, Lord, for blessing us in so many ways, for providing for us in so many ways, and ultimately, we thank you for our salvation, Lord, only through Christ, only through the cross, his blood, what he did for us in rising on the third day. So, Lord, be with us this morning. Penetrate our hearts. Remove any distractions, any hindrances, anything, Lord, that would get in the way of us seeing you and your beauty, your glory, your, your power. Help us to comprehend, Lord, who you are. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of today's message is The Crucifixion of the Son. Crucifixion of the Son. We looked at the giving of the Son, and then last week we... We looked at the giving of the Son and the offering of the Son and the crucifixion of the Son and preparation for the resurrection of the Son. Praise God for the crucifixion. The crucifixion, well, crucifixion, perhaps, as it's been described for us in history, is one of the most shameful, degrading, painful, humilia- humiliating ways to die. It was reserved for the lowest of the low. Low-life criminals, enemies of the state. The Romans wanted to show anyone, you cross us, this is what will happen to you. Swift, public, torturous death so that everyone could see, and they usually would crucify people right by a main road so that those that would walk by would see what would happen when you crossed the state, when you went against them, when you disrupted law and order. Typically, the criminal was first beaten. After that, they carried their own cross if they had the strength. Brought to a public place, as I mentioned, for everyone to see. They were stripped naked, humiliated, mocked, then put on the cross. Usually it was three nails, one in each wrist, which was considered part of the hand, one through both feet. Put on that cross to die a slow, painful, agonizing death usually by asphyxiation. They'd push themselves up and down, up, lose strength, go back down. You do that over and over and over, hour after hour after hour for days on end, typically. The Romans would then leave the bodies on the crosses after that for the scavenging birds to have their fill, uh, perhaps some stray dogs. Once the body started to decompose, they'd throw it in a pit, let the other animals have their fill as well. That is what the history books tell us about crucifixion. Not a pretty picture. Nonetheless, it's a historical reality as to how the Romans and others, history tells us Romans picked it up from the Persians and perfected it, it's how they crushed their enemies, how they humiliated those in opposition. Anyone who dared to challenge them crucified. It was a symbol of Roman victory and enemy defeat. So the irony in all this is that this was the means, the crucifixion of the Son of God, this was the means that God used to flip the script, to show himself victorious, 
to show himself all-powerful, to show his ultimate authority, and to display his love and his grace and his mercy in a way we will perhaps never be able to fully comprehend. His divine wrath and justice, his holiness was on display, his providence and his meticulous fulfillment of prophecy was unfolding throughout the crucifixion of Christ. It's like a diamond that's being turned and refracting light. Different angles is the beauty of the cross as we look through the lens of scripture and see all these different ways in which God showed forth his power, his victory, his wisdom, his glory, his wisdom at the cross, and it should stun us, it should captivate us, it should humble us when we see all that God has done through the crucifixion of his son. So important is this message of the crucifixion of Jesus that Paul proclaims in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul knew a lot of things. He was a Pharisee. He knew much of the Old Testament before coming to Christ. Then he came to Jesus Christ, and he knew Christ probably more than anyone. And yet he says, I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wrote almost half the New Testament books where he's explaining and dissecting the Old Testament and applying it properly in the New Covenant. Of course he knew more than the crucifixion. Of course he proclaimed more than that. He wrote 16 chapters to the Corinthian church. It's a figure of speech. He's saying this it was the central part of my message. Don't miss it. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14 May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It was Paul's boast, the crucified Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's not only I who live, but Christ who lives in, in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul loved the doctrine of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He loved teaching about Jesus crucified because he knew it was the only way of salvation. It was the only way to heaven. It was the only way by which we must be saved, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, paying for our sins. He says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection to share in his sufferings and be conformed to his death in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I love how he's pressing on, forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because of the crucifixion, because of the forgiveness of sins we have in Christ, Paul says, I want to suffer with him. I want to be united in his death. I want to know Christ in an intimate way. It's as if Paul wanted to be there at the cross, except he came later. We'll read about in a little bit who was there at the cross. But on a plaster wall near the Palatine Hill in Rome, Italy, there was once carved a picture depicting a donkey on a cross. Most scholars date this depiction from around 50 A.D. to 200 A.D. 
It's still there in a museum today. Someone around that time carved this picture, a donkey on a cross. It's our earliest depiction of crucifixion that we have. It's known as the Alexamenos Graffito, also known as the Blasphemous Graffito. The image seems to show a young man worshiping a crucified donkey-headed figure. The Greek inscription translates, Alexamenos worships his God. It's a mockery. It's a, it was done by most likely a pagan who was showing what pagans believed at that time about Christians. Look at you foolish Christians. There's your God. That's who you worship, an animal, a donkey. You fools, you idiots. That's what Christianity was. You worship a savior who was stripped naked, beaten, and given the most bloody, horrifying, disgusting, low-life death, crucifixion. That's how the world viewed it. See, today we live in a culture where crucifixion, I don't know if a lot of people mock it, at least the so-called Christian movement, people, you see even celebrities and people that don't claim to be Christians wearing crosses. It's almost become part of the culture. It's not mocked in many ways, although some still do mock it. We'll talk about that as well in a moment. Marcus Fronto, who was a tutor of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor from around 160 to 180, says this about Christianity. Quote, the religion of the Christians is foolish inasmuch as they worship a crucified man and even the instrument itself of his punishment. Of course, we don't worship the wooden cross that Jesus was crucified on. We worship Jesus, our Savior, who was crucified for the sins of the world. See, they'll admit he was crucified. They just don't see all that was going on there. God turned everything upside down with the crucifixion. What looks, what looks foolish to the world is the wisdom and power of God. That's the testimony of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 24. You can turn there if you'd like, or you could just listen to these words. If only they had read this text. It's about them. It's about Marcus Fronto. It's about this person who drew this donkey-headed figure on a cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 24 explains their position in detail. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. This is God talking. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. That's from Isaiah 29, 14. Paul's quoting. So Paul, Paul goes on to say, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. He's saying, where's, in today's modern vernacular, where's the atheist? Where's the agnostic? Where's the man with his PhDs and all his degrees and all his intellect? Where's the man who's holding up science and saying, I believe in evolution? We'd go down to Third Street in Santa Monica and Southern California. It's what you hear all the time. I believe in evolution. I believe in science. I'm smart. I have my degrees. I went to UCLA. I went to USC. I studied evolution under this professor, and it destroys Christianity. Paul says, where's the scribe? Where's the wise man? Where's the debater? Where can they be found? Well, he wrote half the New Testament. Paul's describing himself before coming to Christ, wise in his own eyes, puffed up with the knowledge of the law, yet brought low when he met Jesus on that road to Damascus. Ironically, yesterday was April 1st, what many call April Fool's Day. Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. April Fool's Day. That's what many call National Atheist Day. God calls their position foolish. They're blinded by the God of this world to not see God's beauty, his grace, his love, his power all around them. May they come to Jesus and live. Some atheists say, not only does God not exist, we don't believe Jesus ever existed. You guys have your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Where else is Jesus shown in history? They'll say. They'll go on to say, therefore, he couldn't die on a cross. There goes your religion. There's a man by the name of Bart Ehrman. Some consider him, him the top New Testament scholar in the world. He knows the Greek language like the back of his hand. Studied under F.F. F. Bruce, an evangelical Christian. Bart Ehrman went to Moody Bible College, was once a Christian, threw away his faith, is now an agnostic or an atheist. Agnostics are humble atheists. Atheists say there is no God, but agnostics say, well, how could we know that? We're not at all places at all times. God could be somewhere out there. At least they'll admit that. Bart Ehrman, I've watched several of his debates. Very smart guy. Actually helped me with this message as I'm talking about crucifixion and what it was and what we see in the history books. Yet even Bart Ehrman, who is one of the most critical antagonists of the Christian religion believes that Jesus was crucified. In his article, Why Romans Crucified People and Who Was Crucifixion For, states Jesus' death by crucifixion for calling himself King of the Jews is as close to a historical certainty as we have. Craig Evans agrees with that. Virtually everyone agrees with that. See, Bart Ehrman will look at the scripture and he'll say, Jesus lived, sure. Jesus, okay, maybe he did some miracles, I don't know. Jesus died on the cross, I'll give you that. When it comes to the main miracle, the resurrection, when I went on to read this article, he goes, yeah, I think Jesus was thrown to the dogs. I think he was thrown into a pit. That's what the Romans typically did. So what he does with the scripture is where it agrees with his lifestyle when he likes what it says, okay, yeah, that's true, that's true, that's true. Get to the places where 
if Jesus really is the son of God, if he really rose from the grave, if he really ascended and is at the right hand of the father and is going to come back and judge this world in righteousness. Yeah, we don't like that. We don't accept that part. Nevertheless, he believed and we'll say it's a historical certainty as close as you can, you can get to a fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And he'll say he died because he called himself the king of the Jews. See, that's why he died. It was insurrection against Caesar. Well, that's what the Jews told Pilate. You need to put him to death. Pilate says, I, I don't find this man guilty. Pilate was doing everything he could to get around crucifying Jesus. A part of him knew who Jesus was. And you see this interaction in John 18 and John 19 where finally Pilate walks away. He says, what is truth? As truth is standing right in front of him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Here's Jesus going back and forth with Pilate. Jesus even says, I am a king. Yes, you're correct, I am a king. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight. Yet he wasn't arguing, even though the religious leaders are throwing all these contradictory statements at him. He said he'll tear down the temple and in three days rebuild it. That's the best that they had. Crucify him because he said he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. These are some of the things that they were saying. Pilate goes, this man, I have nothing against him. Yet the Jews kept saying, he's calling himself a king. And we have no king but Caesar. See, they weren't even saying God's their king. Caesar's our king, Pilate. And Jesus is coming against that, so crucify him. Finally, they got their way and crucified the king of glory. So like many atheists, agnostics, and Bart Ehrman, they see this precious diamond, they turn it, they analyze it, they examine it, they look at the scripture, they might even say, yeah, it's a diamond, and then they say useless. They say ordinary, they say it's foolish, and they toss it aside, and they go on with their scholarly work and fulfill Isaiah 28:16 and Psalm 118:22 and 23 Behold I lay in Zion a choice cornerstone a precious cornerstone the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone this is the Lord's doing it's marvelous in our eyes Jesus is the cornerstone the chief cornerstone like builders who construct a building spend a good amount of time on the foundation, make sure the cornerstone is set in place, they looked at Jesus and said, useless, of no use, trash, tossed him aside. They didn't consider him precious. They didn't consider him part of the building, so to speak. They threw him away. That's Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118. But he became the chief cornerstone, and this is marvelous in our eyes. To those who could see who Jesus truly is and what he truly did for us, marvel at him. Marvel at the cross. Glory in the cross and say like Paul, I boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. They make it their ambition to study the cross, to love what happened on the cross for our sins, and to proclaim it to the world. I want to take our attention now to John chapter 19. John chapter 19 verse 16 
is where we'll pick up the narrative, the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. We could have picked Matthew, we could have picked Mark, we could have picked Luke, all different narratives, but yet telling an overlapping story, all giving us a different angle, so to speak, of the diamond as it's turned. And perhaps we could, before I read this text, just a quick comment, perhaps we could give many, many, many teachings on the crucifixion comparing the different gospel accounts, looking at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, perhaps a teaching for every saying that he gave, looking at the typology of the cross, the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus, Isaac, as we looked at a little bit before, Samson, how he died with his arms stretched out, all these pictures and typologies in the Old Testament, Hundreds, if not thousands of years before the crucifixion showing how Jesus would die. All the fulfilled scripture and prophecy. Man, so many teachings that we could give. But we're going to read this text together and then I want to make a couple comments. I want to look mostly at some of the prophecy that was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. John chapter 19 verse 16. And by the way, one more comment. Yesterday I asked my wife, Leah, I said, who was at the cross? I test her from time to time. Even as I'm putting together my messages, I'm trying to stump her. It's hard to stump a godly woman. She goes, of course, it was the women there and John. I said, how'd you know that? And then she quoted part of the passage that I'm going to read to you right now. We're going to talk about that as well. Where are the disciples at? Where's the multitude that was once praising him, that he once fed thousands of people on two separate occasions and all these people that he healed. Where are they? John chapter 19, verse 16. So he then delivered him, that's Pilate, delivered him to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him. With him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They said, therefore, to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so that they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Quite a lot going on there. Why would they break the bones of their legs? Well, as I mentioned, asphyxiation. Death needed to set in, needed to get these bodies off the cross. It was a Sabbath day. Don't leave them up there like you typically would, as I mentioned earlier, to rot and so that the birds could have their fill or the ravenous dogs. Get these bodies down. Well, they're not going to die for another day or two because they're going to continue to push themselves up with their legs. So break the legs. Therefore, they can't breathe. They die. But yet, Jesus was already dead. If you notice in several of these verses... Verse 24, verse 28, verse 36. John says that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then he alludes to scripture or he quotes scripture. Several times in this passage, he's looking back at the Old Testament. He's showing us that this wasn't some random death. This was rooted and founded and anticipated in the Old Testament. So in verse 24, he's alluding to Psalm 22:18. He actually quotes it. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In verses 28 and 29, he's alluding to Psalm 69:21. They also gave me gall, or poison, for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Also, Psalm 34:20, which is alluded or quoted in verse 36. He keeps all my bones, not one of them is broken. And then allusions in verses 31 through 36 to Exodus 12:46, The Israelites there are commanded regarding their Passover lamb, quote, you are not to break any bone of it. 
You do several teachings just on the Passover lamb and how the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus. Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, our Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb, none of its bones was to be broken. Numbers 9, 12, they shall leave none of it until morning nor break any bone of it. Then we have Zechariah 12, 10 in verse 37 of John 19. They shall look on him whom they pierced. His bones weren't broken. They divided his garments. He was pierced for our transgressions, which leads me to Isaiah 53. If you remember, actually, on that Emmaus road in Luke chapter 24, 25 through 27, here the disciples are after the resurrection. They're talking to Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus, and Jesus is rebuking them. Because they're like, hey, sir, didn't you hear what all that happened in the last couple days? It's kind of crazy. Jesus, who you know, ha- was full of the Spirit, some amazing man and prophet was crucified, and then they don't know where he's at now. The tomb's empty, and we're confused. What's going on? Do you, have you heard of these things, sir? Here's Jesus in their midst. They can't fully see him, just like their hearts can't fully see who he is, spiritually speaking. And the text says in Luke chapter 24, 25 through 27 that Jesus rebuked them. Has, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things, to enter into his glory? And it, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and the scriptures. Hey guys, look, I'm all throughout the scripture. I'm in the Passover and the Passover lamb. Yeah, that's referring to me. Yeah, Isaiah 53 that's referring to me. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Isaiah 53, 6. The iniquity of us all fell upon him. Verse 7. He was like a lamb to be slaughtered. Verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living. Verse 9. He was, a ri- he was with a rich man in his death. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Verse 11, he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he poured out himself to death. The transgressors, yet he numbered, he himself bore the sin of many and was numbered with the transgressors and interceded for them. Isaiah 53, perhaps one of the clearest depictions of the crucifixion and of the life, death, and even mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. 700 years before Jesus lived and died, there was Isaiah 52 at the end, and 53, the prophecies concerning Jesus, the manner in which he would die, the way he would die, why he died, how he would die, who he would die with, the declaration of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, which is under attack today. I was looking at a book, Did God Kill Jesus, written by a man by the name of Tony Jones. He went on CNN promoting this book. Some people claim that he's a Christian. He's an emergent Christian. In this book and in several other books, he's attacking the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He says in one of his books, I don't want to just reject substitutionary atonement. I want to dethrone it altogether. That Jesus is a substitute for our sins that he took our place, that God's wrath was poured out on him instead of on us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin 
to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or as I mentioned in Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. See, they don't want to talk about God like that. God putting his son to death, God allowing his son to be put to death for our sins. They don't allow all the scripture to speak. Just like Bart Ehrman, they want to take parts of the scripture that they like and the other parts, well, this doesn't make me feel good. Well, it doesn't matter how it makes us feel, right? Do we want the truth or not? That's what it comes down to. And that's what many false teachers today are doing. They pick and choose what they want to teach on. We don't have that luxury. If we truly call ourselves Christians, if we truly say we love his word, then we truly proclaim 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be equipped for every good work, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture, Isaiah 53 included. Isaiah 53, 6, the iniquity of us all fell upon him. Verse 10, he would render himself a guilt offering. Verse 11, he will bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many. This is the proclamation of scripture that Jesus on the cross when he was crucified bore the sin of the world. It's affirmed in Matthew 1, 21. Mary, you're going to have a son. You're going to name your son Jesus. Why? His name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. How would would he do that? On the cross. John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Christ died for our sins. Over and over and over, Old Testament, New Testament tells us what was going on at the cross. Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself. Does that mean we fully comprehend all of that? Does that mean we totally understand every single part of the atonement? There's over 10 different theories on the atonement. What Jesus did on that cross, he conquered Satan, the scripture says. He triumphed over the rulers and the authorities. So there's Christus Victor. There's that theory. And I don't even like to say theory, but when you look it up online in many of these articles and scholars, they call them theories. The substitutionary atonement theory, the Christus Victus theory, this theory, that theory. I want to know what the scripture says. What does the scripture say that Jesus Christ did on the cross? And so that's my prayer. Lord, show me those scriptures and help me to understand them. All of them. So Jesus conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered death. He bore our sins for himself. He was obedient to his father. He showed love, grace, and mercy for the world, and yet the father's wrath was poured out upon him. That's why I say it's like a diamond. You turn it, and you're seeing different angles and different refractions of light, and that's what's going on with the crucifixion. There's that song, The Mystery of the Cross. I don't think Leah sang it today. I thought she was going to. I don't know. Maybe I missed it watching my kids back there. Charity Gale, thank you, Jesus. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect son of God. I forget how it goes from there. But the mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The more we gaze at it, the more we look at the scripture, the more we read texts like Isaiah 53 and Colossians chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Romans and all... 
we bring all of these scriptures together and we say, Lord, show us all that you were doing at the cross, but help us not to miss the main thing, that Jesus died for our sins. My religion professor in college, so-called Christian minister, pastor, Lutheran pastor, PhDs from USC as well as an Ivy League school, I believe it was Yale, said we're still trying to figure out who Isaiah 53 is referring to. We don't know. He said myself and the other religion professors here don't know who Isaiah 53 is about. He said this seriously in class one day. Some of us think it's Moses. Some of us think it's Israel. Some say Jeremiah. Maybe it was a prophet. These are the smart, intellectual people teaching in seminaries and colleges, calling themselves Christians. All they had to do was read Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus said, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment, as he quotes Isaiah 53, 12. He's quoting Isaiah 53, 12 to his disciples, and he says, this has its fulfillment in me. Just one simple verse. I mean, I can go many different places. When you, be, when you have become smarter than Jesus, when you have become smarter than God's word, then there's a problem. All the learning, all the knowledge, knowing the Greek, the Hebrew, apologetics, knowing all the atonement theories, writing these massive books, studying at Yale and USC and Harvard, spending your entire life studying the Bible, and yet you can miss the most basic truths of the gospel, the most basic truths of what happened at the cross. Which brings us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following, when Paul says, I... The gospel, what Jesus did on the cross, destroys the wisdom of the wise. No prideful people get into heaven. You might struggle with pride, but you have humbled yourself. Jesus said, unless you're converted and become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom. That's why a child can understand if you tell them, share with them Isaiah 53, share some scripture about Jesus dying for their sins. They could understand these truths. And someone studying the Bible for 40 years who has all these PhDs, misses the whole thing. And that's what happened with the religious leaders. That's what happened with the Pharisees. They should have been the ones right there at the cross. They should have been saying, wow, look, we know all these scriptures. We know Isaiah 53. We know Exodus. We know the Passover lamb. We know how Isaac was going to be offered. This is, this is fulfillment. They missed it. The multitudes missed it. But who was there? The women. Here's the women, illiterate, most likely illiterate, uneducated, overlooked, had no testimony in the first century in the court of law, considered the lowest of the low. Here they are. Here they are at the cross, ministering to Jesus, surely praying, caring for him in some way. God's always turning things upside down. That's what's amazing about our God and about his word just reading through the gospel of john women are all throughout who dropped their water pot and ran into town as jesus revealed himself to her the woman at the well amazing who anointed jesus with this very costly perfume to prepare him for his burial as the disciples are 
arguing and complaining and Judas is saying that could have been given to the poor. She could have sold that perfume and we could have made a lot of money. It says, it says, well, yeah, he was a thief and taking from the money bag. He didn't really want to give to the poor. But here's women over and over again ministering to Jesus. When almost everyone else missed it, Who's there in John chapter 11, verse 27, saying, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. There's Martha proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Amazing. When you read much of ancient history, when you look at different religions, they embellish a lot of things. They want to show themselves victorious. They don't want to put the warts and the bad historical facts in their writings. When you look at Islam, they don't even put the crucifixion of Jesus in the Quran. I mean, they put the crucifixion, but they say it wasn't him. God wouldn't do that. No. So they leave that out. God made some person to look like Jesus to be crucified. Interesting how Satan is always attacking what God's doing. We know what's behind that religion, but when you read about kingdoms and when you read about cultures and when you read about religions, if the Bible was just like all these others, you would expect not the women to be at the cross. You'd expect the disciples, all of them, to be there because Jesus told them many times he would be crucified. Who would be the first to the tomb? Surely it would be the disciples again. But John and Matthew, Mark and Luke record for us what happened, exactly how it happened. And there are the women all throughout Jesus' ministry. He's exalting them. He's lifting them up, promoting them, using them to support his ministry. It's a beautiful thing. John should get credit too. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. There he is at the cross, the only one with the women. Listen to what one commentary, the Gill commentary, has to say about the women at the cross. It's somewhat of a lengthy quote, but he summarizes what I'm trying to say here. He says, three Marys are mentioned here together. He's referencing John 19, 25. A lot could be said about this text, but I want to talk about the women just for a little bit, being at the cross. Three Marys are mentioned here together, and it's observable that the greater part of those that are taken notice of as following Christ to the cross, they're standing by it. They were women, the weaker timorous people when all his disciples forsook and fled and none of them attended at the cross as we read of except John no not even Peter who boasted so much of his attachment to him these good women standing by the cross of Christ may teach us to do as they did look upon a crucified Christ view his sorrows and his sufferings and our sins laid upon him and born and taken away by him we should look unto him for pardon, cleansing, and justification, and in short, the whole of salvation. We should also weep as they did while we look on him, shed even tears of affection for and sympathy with him of humiliation for sin and of joy for a Savior, and likewise should abide by him as they did by his persons, offices, and grace, by the doctrine of the cross continuing steadfastly in it and by the ordinances of Christ constantly attending on them and that notwithstanding all reproaches and sufferings 
we may undergo. I love how John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all show there's the women at the cross. There's our example. As I mentioned, God's always flipping the script. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Nowhere to be found. Here's the women, the humble women at the cross. When you read through the book of Acts after Jesus rises from the dead in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are in the upper room. There they are crying out to God, and it says in Acts chapter 1, and who's with them? It says the women. It says Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the women. There they are, continuing to trust in Christ. When you read Paul's letter in Romans chapter 16, as he's giving this farewell to all these brothers and sisters, well, there's sisters in there as well. He talks about Phoebe, I think it is. He talks about Priscilla and Aquila who risked their necks for his life all throughout our women who are supporting Paul's ministry. When you get to Acts chapter 18, and here's this eloquent man, Apollos. He's refuting the Jews. He's refuting these false doctrines, yet he doesn't know the way fully. Who takes him aside but a husband and wife couple to correct him? Women all throughout the story, all throughout the gospel, all throughout the New Testament are being praised, lifted up, shown forth for their boldness, their courage, their knowledge of the scripture. And so as I'm talking about the crucifixion, I wanted to make a couple points about the beauty of godly women. I mean, I wouldn't be the person I am today for sure. The most influential people in my life are my wife and my mom, two women. When Paul writes his letter to Timothy, he talks about your grandmother and your mother. Timothy had an unbelieving dad, a Christian mother. They raised Timothy in the faith who grew up to be a great man of God. Mothers, wives, women. A couple weeks ago, I talked to the men just for a minute. A word to the women. Don't. God has a special place in his heart for you, for your service to the church and ministering to other men in the church with your knowledge of the word, ministering to other women in the church, reaching out to younger women that might not know as much about the word or might not know as much about marriage or might not know as much about life in general. Don't underestimate your impact. If you're raising kids in your house, don't underestimate your impact on raising up the next generation, day in and day out, pouring forth the word of truth into their lives. Don't underestimate if you're doing children's ministry and you say, yeah, but there's three kids back there. Eagle Christian has 5,000 children in their vacation Bible school. I want to really go make an impact. I'm going over there. I don't know, I just say that because I drive by there a lot and on Sunday mornings and see 10,000 cars in their parking lot. Say, Lord, I'm just going to minister to our little Eagle Senior Center faithful fellowship. Jesus used 12 disciples to turn the world upside down. Gideon, get rid of your large army. I'm going to show you what I can do with just a few men. God's always flipping the script. The question is, are we faithful? He who's faithful in little will be faithful in much. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. Serve these children like you're serving Jesus himself. Serve your husband like you're serving Jesus himself. Serve the church, whether it's five people or 5,000 people. 
like you're serving Jesus himself. Watch the blessing that comes with it. Watch the joy that comes with it. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. The power of the gospel. The power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Today, in closing, we've but scratched the very tip of the iceberg. We've but looked up at Mount Everest and we're still at the very bottom of the hill. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ as I mentioned, the mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. Yet Paul says in Ephesians 3.18 and 3.19 to comprehend the incomprehensible, to know the unknowable, that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Know the love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge. That's our duty as Christians, to continue to seek, to continue to knock, continue to find. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. Keep searching. Keep diligently looking over the scripture. Lord, this has been my prayer lately. Help me to understand your word and apply it in my life. A simple prayer. I just want to know your truth. I feel like I don't know but anything about much of the scripture. The more I read, I'm going, Lord, there's so much here. I think he hears that prayer. He saw those women at the cross. He saw his mom and he tenderly cared for her till the end. Cicero once said, it's a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It's an enormity to flog one, sheer murder to slay one. What shall I say of crucifixion? It's impossible to find the word for such an abomination. God used the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, this horrific, humiliating, grotesque death, to shut the mouth of kings, to shame the wise, to satisfy his wrath, to forgive us of our sins, to save us from hell, to triumph from over Satan, and many other things, as well as show us his grace, love, and mercy in a way that we might not fully ever comprehend. For to him and through him, are all things. May he receive glory and honor forever.